0: Tell me some reasons that that life is uncertain in uh, right now, December fifth, two thousand ten. Give me give me some reasons why life is so uncertain. This is crowd participation. Don't know what tomorrow brings. She stole my answer. That makes life. The guitar might fall over. That's that's uncertainty. Pardon? Disease. Okay. Economy. Government. Politics. Oh, now y'all are getting into it. I might have uh, shut this down. Preaching. Preaching. You never know how long the preacher's going to go, do you? Yes. Savings account balance. And some of you are going, What's a savings account? Relationships, terrorism, Christmas presents. There's some pretty uncertain things going on in our world. Has there ever been a time in history that's been more uncertain than right now? Actually, yes. There has. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, and the times were anything but stable. You read any story from any time, and if you study the background, you'll find out that that the Bible was written during really uncertain times. Take, for example, our text today. How many of you have heard the term upper room? Heard about the upper room? I've heard of upper room Christian bookstores, upper room uh, ministries, upper room churches, upper room uh, coffee shops. I've heard of all these different upper room things. But when Christians speak about the upper room, we're talking specifically about the last night, the Thursday night, before Jesus Christ um, was crucified. And, and what we're talking about is um, what, we, what we refer to that happened in the upper room was the Last Supper. Now, what was going on is Jesus and his disciples were going to celebrate the Passover. And we've talked about the Passover a whole lot. But let me give you a quick review. Every Jew, every good Jew, male Jew, was expected to visit Jerusalem during the Passover and, and uh, celebrate the Passover meal in Jerusalem. So there were thousands and thousands of people crammed into the city for this special celebration, this special event. And we've talked about this a lot. Uh, The people were to get together and they were to remember a time when they were in Egypt, when they were slaves in Egypt, and all they had known for 400 years was slavery. And they had prayed to God for 400 years, and for over 400 years their prayers had gone unanswered. But then all of a sudden, God um, gives them a deliverer, and what was his name? Moses, Big Mo. Big Mo comes on the scene, and Big Mo stands before them and he says, Tomorrow we get to leave. Over 400 years we've been slaves. Tomorrow we're leaving. And he says, but tonight an angel of death is going to come all over the land. And the angel is going to kill the firstborn child of every family unless the, the, the blood of the lamb is on the doorpost. And that will cause the death angel to pass over that house. And so then the next day, we read about everything that happened. The next day, Pharaoh is distraught because his son has been killed by the death angel. And Pharaoh says, you're free to go now. You may leave now. So, the Passover meal was the last supper in Egypt. The next morning, they were going to pack up all of their belongings and they were going to go to what we call the Promised Land, to Canaan, where they are today. Um, but they also got to pack up all of this plunder from the Egyptians. With Without even killing anyone, God caused the Egyptians to, to look favorably upon the Israelites. And so they gave them all of their treasure and said, Just please go, please go. Your God's too powerful. Get out of here. So now... 1,400 years later, Jesus was going to gather with his disciples on the Thursday night before he was going to be crucified, and they were going to celebrate the Passover. Now, they'd done this many times during Jesus' ministry, but this time was different. Every time before, Jesus had been popular. This time, though, Jesus was not so popular, and it was radically different. Rumors were flying around Jerusalem that the higher-ups in society didn't like Jesus, and they were going to try to take him out. And on top of the rumors, Jesus starts talking about his death. And his followers just kind of tuned out the death teaching part because they really didn't want to hear that stuff. And it's real important that, that we understand the mindset of his followers, his disciples. Because their mindset is very much like ours. They believed, and this was based on some of the stuff in the Old Testament, some of the Israelite history, they believed if God is with you, everything gets better and better and better. You get wealthier, you get healthier. If you're sick, you get healed. God just comes down and rains blessing upon blessing upon blessing on you if God is with you. That's how it works. And that's how we think a lot of times too. So this, this night got really confusing for the disciples, because the Bible tells us that when Jesus Jesus announces, last time he's been in Jerusalem, there's nothing but trouble. And Jesus says, hey guys, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. And and Thomas, doubting Thomas, pops off and goes, well, we might as well go and die with him. Because Jesus said, we're going to have lots of trouble in Jerusalem. Let's go. Who's in? And so they all come trudging to Jerusalem. Now, every other, um, Passover they had celebrated, Jesus had told them exactly where to go, where they were going, where they were going to set up and everything. But this night was so different. He, he pulls aside two of his followers and he says, Hey, uh, I want you to go into Jerusalem and I want you to find some mysterious man. And he told them how to find this man and you're to follow him to his house. When you get to that house, you ask his, um, his master where the room is and he'll show you a room. He didn't tell them specifics. He said, you go do this. And then Jesus hangs around outside of Jerusalem till the cover of darkness happens. And then he sneaks in and they go to the upper room, never telling them where they were going. And remember, this is Thursday night. Remember five days prior to this, you remember what we call that? When Jesus comes walking into Jerusalem, it's called the triumphal entry. Jesus is on a donkey, which the royalty would have ridden back then. That's not something we think of riding if you're royalty. But a donkey, they put a coat over it, and then people were throwing their coats, their cloaks in the road, and they were shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were saying, oh, he's the Messiah, he's the one. Five days later, it was no longer popular to be seen with Jesus. Stuff had changed in five days. And that's where we pick up our story. There's, they sneak into Jerusalem, go to the upper room. Look what what it says in Mark 14, chapter uh, verse 7. 17. Hello. In the evening, after darkness, Jesus went to that house with the twelve, the house with the upper room. While they were all eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you will turn against me. One of you eating with me now. Jesus says, uh, guys, I got an announcement to make. Um, one of you is going to... Um, hand me over. And the situation was such that nobody said, um, um, excuse me, teacher, hand you over to whom? Nobody asked that question because they all knew. That's how bad things were. They knew who was coming after Jesus. And um, it was a bad time and everybody knew it. In five short days, this situation had deteriorated big time. And then to make matters worse, Jesus says, not only is it one of you guys, but it's one of you who is eating here at the table with me. In that culture, to eat with someone signified to everyone around. It was a public declaration that you're my friend and I will not do anything to harm you. In fact, I'll do everything I can to help you. And so to say that, that you were going to eat with someone and then stab them in the back was just unbelievable. It'd be like if you were hosting a Christmas party at your house and you invite people to come over and you're this wonderful host and you feed them great food and people come. And after dessert, somebody hands you this piece of paper and you say, what's that piece of paper? You say, oh, thanks for the meal. That's your subpoena to appear in court. I'm suing you for everything you've got. You understand kind of the, the betrayal feeling that, that Jesus had? But on top of that, he said, not only is it one of you eating with me, it's one of you eating this last, this sacred meal around this sacred table. He said, we're celebrating national Israel come out of Egypt party. We're celebrating what God has done for our country. An amazing time, 1,400 years ago, and you have the audacity to eat at this table with me. You're going to stab me in the back. Verse 19, the followers were very sad to hear this. Each one began to say to Jesus, I'm not the one, am I? Jesus answered, it is one of the twelve, the one who dips his bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will die, just as the scriptures say, but how terrible it will be for the person who hands the son of man over to be killed. It would be better for him if he'd never been born. Now, if you've read any of the New Testament, you know that there'd been several times that the followers had argued over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. James and John, they asked for the, the the seats on the right hand, the left hand of Jesus. Actually, their mama did. They were mama's boys, and their mama said, "Can my boys sit on your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom of God?" And and Jesus was like, "You don't know what you're asking." And so when the other disciples heard about that, they all get in this fight, arguing who's better. I'm better. No, you're better. No, I'm better. I'm better. I'm better. You know, just stupid stuff. They'd argued over who was the greatest. But at this point, they were arguing over who was the vilest, who was the worst person on the planet. It's not me, is it, Jesus? And you, you know the Bible says that being adopted into God's family is being reborn, and it's talking about a spiritual birth. You have a physical birth, and you have a spiritual birth. And so, if you are a Christ follower, you have two birthdays: a physical birthday and a spiritual birthday. Well, this last sentence there says it would be better for him if he'd never been born. This indicates that that if you've never been born again, there will come a day when you wish you'd never been born at all, when you stand before God. Would you agree that things were a little bit uncertain on this last night before Jesus was going to die? Just a bit. The Bible was written during a time of crazy uncertainty. And, and, you know, we're in an uncertain time, and it seems like life is always going to be uncertain, right? Anybody know? Okay. Life is uncertain, so it seems like if the Bible talks about uncertainty and in every story you find out that God is faithful, it seems like when we go through uncertain times, maybe we should turn to the Bible to find out how other people faced uncertainty. Um, and so that's, that's what I want you to get, is the Bible was written during uncertain times. That's the first blanks on your listening guide. The Bible was written during uncertain times. And I'm going to give you a few examples of uncertain times, just in case you hadn't figured this out. Back in Genesis chapter 30, we discover the story of a boy named Joseph. This isn't Mary and Joseph that we're going to be talking about in just a few weeks, uh, the birth of Jesus. This was Joseph the dreamer, Joseph the coat of many colors, that guy. He's a dreamer and as a young man, his brothers get tired of his dreaming and they say, uh, let's, let's get rid of this dude because we can't stand this dreamer. So, um, they, they throw him in a pit. Now, how many of you have ever had sibling rivalry? Anyone? Anyone? Okay. So you understand what it is when, when brothers and sisters fight. My sister's seven years older than me. We fought. I thought the chick hated me. She told me she loved me, but I you couldn't tell it. And, and you couldn't tell that I loved her as we were growing up. But if you've ever had sibling rivalry or if it's alive and well in your family, check this out. His brothers throw him in a pit and then he overhears them arguing. Do we kill him or do we sell him? You ever heard that one? If you had, you got serious issues. We need counseling now. And, and very few of us can relate to that, but, but here's what we find out. Over the next 20 chapters in, in Genesis, we find out that through some crazy circumstances, he's sold into slavery, then he's thrown into jail for a crime he did not commit, and you discover in the midst of all that that God was with him. Emmanuel, that's one of the names of Jesus. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Well, there's another one, King David. Lots of stories about King David, but uh, how many of you have had problems with your kids? This is participation. Anyone had problems with your kids? Okay. Let's see if you can relate to David. David's son, Absalom, raised an army to dethrone the king. In Old Testament times, being dethroned meant you would be what? Killed! Absalom was going to kill his daddy because he wanted the throne. You ever had your... Well, I don't know. Maybe we won't go there. Never had your kids want to kill you? Probably. David fled for his life from his own son. But if you read the whole story, God was with him. Moses is the next one. Just think about this time when Moses was born. The um, Hebrew mother had this son... At a time when Pharaoh said, there are too many Hebrews in the land. So I'm going to make a law. I'm going to make it illegal for you to have a Hebrew son. If you have a boy that's born, my butchers are supposed to kill him. And so she has to make a choice. And God, is this child, did this come from you? Or am I going to kill this son and so she makes a choice. She says, if, if it's the crocodiles in the Nile River or it's the, the butcher squad, I'm going to take my chances with the crocodiles. So she makes this little basket boat thing and puts her son in there and shoots him out in the Nile River. And through a crazy set of circumstances, we find out that God was with him and actually raised him up to deliver the Hebrew people. Holy cow! And Moses' deliverance actually foreshadows another baby who needed to be delivered from a death squad Hundreds of years later in Bethlehem, and we're talking about Jesus, Herod heard that there's a baby had been born who was called King of the Jews. And well, that was Herod's job. Herod's ego was so big and he was so insecure that he said, we got to wipe this dude out because, you know, if they're going to call him King of the Jews, he may try to take my job someday. So he sends a death squad to Bethlehem to kill all of the baby boys under the age of two. And as the butchers are entering in and beginning to kill the babies, the Bible tells us that Mary and Joseph were warned by an angel in a dream to take Jesus and get out of there, and they escaped from all places back to Egypt. And as you read the story, you discover that, man, it looked crazy uncertain, but God was with them. Read the Bible cover to cover, and you'll find that no matter what the circumstances looked like, God was with his people. Every time it seemed out of control, what actually was going on was God had the whole world in his hands. Men like Herod and Pharaoh, they thought they were in control. Satan, the enemy of God, thought he had defeated the people of God. But if you look back through the rubble of history, you'll discover that every time God's power had not changed and he had the whole world in his hands. The message of this church and of the Bible is that God's power has not changed. He's got the whole world in his hands and he always has. Verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and thanked God for it and broke it. Then he gave it to his followers and said, take, take it. This is my body. Jesus stops in the middle of this Passover celebration. and He goes, "Okay, guys, I know you've been taking this meal since you were boys, but it's going to have a new meaning after tonight. And uh, so he, he takes the, uh, the bread and he says, this is my body. By the way, the word is means represents. Jesus was still standing there before them. He's breaking bread and he says, this bread represents my body which is broken for you. He didn't take a hunk of his skin and hand it to him and say, here, eat my flesh. He said, this bread represents my body that's going to be broken in just a few hours for you. Verse 23, then Jesus took a cup and thanked God for it and gave it to the followers and they drank from the cup. Then Jesus said, this is my blood, which is the new agreement that God makes with his people. This blood is poured out for many. The cup, again, represents his blood. Jesus had not been beaten. He had not been put on the cross yet, nailed on the cross. He'd not had the spear stuck in his side. So his physical blood had not come outside his body yet. Besides, if you read the Old Testament, you find out that cannibalism, eating anything, animals with blood still in them, was abhorrent to anybody who was a Hebrew, who was a Jew. So they wouldn't have done that. So Jesus doesn't say, I want you to be cannibals from now on. That's not what he's saying. He said, this bread represents my body. This cup represents my blood, which will be shed for you. And, and uh, they're thinking, oh man, this death talk again. And they totally ignore the death talk. And then they sing a hymn and they go out to the uh, Mount of Olives. And then verse 27, then Jesus told his followers, you will all stumble in your faith because it is written in the scriptures. I will kill the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Let me stop right there. There are over 50 major prophecies about Jesus Christ and the statistics that one person could accidentally fulfill all of those major prophecies is zero. You couldn't by chance have someone fulfill even half of the prophecies. Here's one of them. This is from Zechariah uh, 13, 7. I will kill the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But look what he says. They ignored this part too. But after I rise from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said, everyone else may stumble in their faith, but I will not. It's like Peter's going, dude, enough with the negativity. This is not how things work. Jesus, you of all people should know this is not how the story goes. When you have God, everything works out for your good. And I think we have the same mindset. Would you agree? We have this idea that if we're going to be a Christ follower, then really we shouldn't have problems. And, and just a few problems come in and, God, what is your problem? This is not how it works. I need to give you some advice, God, about how to do this thing, right? And it really creeps up during the holiday season, every year. It seems we're reminded that life is uncertain, Right? How many of you just look forward? Now, some of you do. My wife is one of these. Just looks forward to buying presents. Let me see your hands. You just love spending money on presents. My wife loves spending money. Your money, my money, God's money. I'm kidding. She, She does love, she loves buying gifts. I hate shopping. See, I'm the hunter type. She's the shopper. The hunter says, I need this. I go in the store, I get it. I put my head down. I try, I love you. But when I go to Walmart to get a pair of socks, I not want to talk to you. I'm kidding. I will always stop and talk to you. It, that's fine. I may be in a hurry, but I will, I will stop and talk to you. But I'm the hunter type, you know. And, and, and it seems like when Christmas comes, there's never enough money and, and all these grubby hands are sticking out for it. And, and then the church asks for some. And dang. right. Life's uncertain without all it. Money's tight. Relationships are strained. How many of you are reminded every... You don't have to raise your hand on this, by the way. Every holiday season that your family sucks. (laughs) Some of you are jumping up and down. I know that's right, baby. (laughs) And You just have this thing in your stomach where you're going, oh. And, And the happiest day of your holiday is when you get in the car and you pull out of the driveway to come home. Or when they leave. Yes, okay. Life is short, right? We're reminded of that every year. Yesterday, I did a funeral in the morning and I did a wedding in the afternoon. And um, I mean, I'm just reminded that life is so uncertain. Okay, with all of the uncertainty then that's surrounding life, here is the question I have for you today. Can you trust God when there's absolutely no evidence that He is at work in your life? I mean, yeah, good church answer, yes! But let me just say to you, your answer to that question will determine how you face uncertainty. Um, We know life's going to be uncertain, but your answer will determine your actions. If we could stop right now and we could kind of do an Oprah type interview, you know, and I could have some special guests here today and I could somehow bring Jesus followers in and we we would have the chairs up here. We'd have 11 chairs up here, you know, and we could do a little talk. That'd be pretty cool. Um, Freak you out, but it'd be cool. Um, But let's say that that we could do that. I would have two questions that I would ask them. First question um, would be this. When was life most uncertain for you? Tell me, as you were a follower of Christ, when was your absolute darkest hour? I think they'd point to this passage that we just read. I think they would say, it all started in the upper room when we figured out that it wasn't going to get better. When we realized that Jesus was going to die, we watched Him arrested, we watched Him tried, and we watched Him die. You want to know when the darkest moment was for us? It's when we realized that God wasn't going to do anything about the death of Jesus. It's when we realized God was not here. God wasn't doing anything. And we've wasted our lives. That was our darkest moment. And then I'd say, okay, question two. Tell me about the time as you walked and followed Jesus Christ. Tell me about when God demonstrated his power. Was it when he healed the blind man? Been born blind. Was it when he said to the, the lame man, get up and walk, and we saw his, his muscles and his legs just all of a sudden he could support? He, he'd never walked in his life. Was that it? Was it when you raised Lazarus, when Jesus raised Lazarus from literally four stinking days in the grave, was that when God demonstrated his power? And I think that they would probably say, when we thought it was the darkest, when we thought God was least active, that's actually the same time that God was doing the most. We just couldn't see it. Those darkest hours, that's when God was acting. And I think they would tell us, and thousands of years from now, people will still be looking back to those hours, and they will rejoice to know that even when God turned His back on His own Son, it was for us. And God was demonstrating His power. But during those hours, man, we were convinced our lives were wasted in following Jesus. Now, if you're a Christ follower, that's your story. <laughs> God seems to do His greatest work when He takes a broken and battered life and He puts it back together. In fact, I forgot to say this yesterday. Greg and Terry got married yesterday. And... Um, Many of you know Greg and Terry. Eight years ago we started New Life for Greg and Terry and we didn't we didn't meet them for six years. And yesterday they celebrated together. They celebrated two years and two months, so twenty six months of sobriety. And when they said I do, they stood over here in front of the Christmas tree. When they said I do, they were Terry was just bawling, Teresa was bawling, people were just people said we never thought that day would come. But Jeff was... Yeah, he was. He, he said, I got teary-eyed, but man, he was boo-hooing back there in the booth. Don't let him fool you. Um, but we had relatives come up to us afterwards and say, we never saw this day coming. But God takes broken and battered lives and He puts them back together. God, here's the way God works. This is the way of God to take our greatest mess-ups... And turn them into his greatest miracles. Now hold on. Don't say. Hot dog preacher said let's go. Screw up our lives. Because then Jesus will come. I will tell you. You are an idiot. Okay. If you think like that. What I'm saying is. When we are in the midst of bad stuff. And we humble ourselves. That's when God shows up. Humility leads you to God. Now. Now. Some of you're going, uh, "Okay, yeah. Great, great story, great message. But how's that help me get a job?" Great, man. That's great, but how's that help my child get well? I got a family member who's who's facing cancer and, you know, great. woo but she's not getting well. We're trying to get pregnant and we can't get pregnant. Maybe we're not trying to get pregnant and we keep getting pregnant. We've got a lot of that going on. We're going to have our sex series next year. Help you figure that out. (laughs) Yeah, it's too late. (laughs) That's a great message. But that doesn't bring my family member back from the grave. Here's, Here's my point today. If God has always been at work in history, if this book is true, He's got the whole world in His hands. It means He's got your world in His hands. It means He's got your family in His hands. He's got your finances in His hands. He's got your job or lack of job in His hands. There's never been a more uncertain time than when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And if God was at work then, do you really think He's not at work in your world? You remember that um, there were two different reactions. Actually, there were two reactions to Jesus' um, death on the cross and neither one of them were good. Judas Judas saw what happened and he went out and he committed suicide because he was so distraught. Peter was just as big a failure as Judas. But Peter kept plodding through his life until Jesus showed up. Until he came on Sunday morning. Which of those two do we consider a failure and which one do we consider a success? The one who hung around until Jesus made an appearance. Which one are you like? One took his matters into his own hands. One hung out and said, Jesus, I'm, I'm going to wait on you. Which one are you? All right, if you don't get anything else, here's, here's the, the point today. This is four blanks. I have to leave as many blanks as possible so the teenagers on the front row don't, don't choose, don't guess the words. Life is uncertain. God is not. Life is uncertain. God is not. I want you to say that with me. Ready? Life is uncertain. God is not. Say it again. Life is uncertain. God is not. One more time. Life is uncertain, God is not. The clear message of every page of the Bible is that God is in control. One of my favorite passages is Romans eight twenty-eight and 29. It says this, "'And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance and He chose them to become like His Son so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters.'" Now, notice this passage does not say that everything that happens to you is good, does it? It does not say that God causes everything to happen. Because there is an enemy until Jesus puts him down and throws him into the eternal pit of fire. There's going to be an enemy who wants to destroy you, destroy your life, destroy your future. So it doesn't say that God causes everything to happen. What it says is God is so big... That he can take the good stuff and the bad stuff that happens in our lives and he can work it together for our good. But what is the good? It's in the second part, in the second sentence. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. So the good that Jesus wants to do in your life, that God wants to do, is he wants to cause you to look like Jesus Christ. He wants you to bear the family resemblance. And most of the time, we don't want to admit this, but most of the time I don't change until something painful happens. Until it hurts so bad that I have to change. Ask Greg and Terry when they changed. Both of them is when they were in jail. Greg had been on drugs for years. 38, 48 years. Almost 48 years. When he finally said, I've got to get out of this. God, help me. I can't do anything. And God changed him. God wants to make you look like Jesus Christ and He'll use anything. That's His main goal. Your happiness isn't... His main goal. Your holiness is His main goal. And He'll use any means at His disposal to make you look like Jesus, to make you holy. Because see, this world is not your final home. You don't get to take your house to heaven. Sorry. Some of you are like, yes! don't get to take all your possessions, your money. The only thing you'll take to heaven is your character, and God wants you to look like Jesus Christ when you step on those streets of gold. We have an advantage over the people of the Old Testament because we have seen, we can look back through the pages of history and we can actually see the greatest declaration of love that's ever been given and that's when Jesus stretched out His arms and died on the cross. 2,000 years ago, He drove a stake in the ground and He said, I love you. And if you ever start to doubt in your uncertain times, look at the cross and be reminded that God gave everything for you so he's still got your world in his hands. And you just got to keep on plodding along until God demonstrates his power. His power hits. If God was in control then, there's no reason to believe he's not in control now. I'm going to ask you to, while you're... While you're Heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I want you to think about where your life is most uncertain right now. And I want you to tell God about it. Spend the next 30 seconds just telling God. He knows, but He wants to hear it from you. So you just talk. I'm going to be quiet for 30 seconds.